This is ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today on the podcast, we take an in-depth look at accent modification and hear from its supporters and its critics. Central to this conversation are questions about the voice and identity. In the fight against linguistic discrimination, is accent modification a tool to repel inequity or perpetuation of it? We'll hear from an SLP who wrote a book on accent modification and another SLP who made waves with a provocative presentation in December of 2020. Plus, leaders of some of ASHA's multicultural constituency groups share their thoughts. It's complicated. It's controversial. It's a conversation on accent modification on ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the Hannon Center. Since 1975, the Hannon Center has been a leader in parent-implemented early language interventions. Stop by their virtual booth at the ASHA convention and discover how best to engage and support parents. Central to today's episode is the connection between speech and identity. Speech and language exist as both a tool and a part of culture and identity. Investigating the choices SLPs make when these concepts are involved in their practice can lead to divisive and sometimes polarizing conversations, like in today's episode. Our story begins in December 2020. The Asian Pacific Islander Speech Language Hearing Caucus is hosting a virtual speaker series. Many of you might remember December of last year for just how difficult that month was. Cases of COVID-19 and resulting hospitalizations were rising. By the end of the month, the number of deaths and infection in the U.S. reached record-breaking numbers. It's also important to note this is the end of a year in which Asian Americans were harassed in public when the coronavirus, which was traced to China, began to spread across the U.S. Hate crimes against Asian Americans grew by nearly 150 percent. That's according to the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism. It should also be mentioned that throughout this year, public attention was increasingly focused on discrimination and systemic injustices. Think of the prevalence of conversations around issues related to anti-racism and diversity, equity, and inclusion. At the start of the virtual speaker series, the attendees, likely scattered throughout the country with the light of their laptop screens across their faces, wait for the presentation to begin. And Betty Yu is so nervous, she feels sick, because she's the presenter, and in just a few moments, she knows the words she will deliver are going to be contentious. It is my honor to present Dr. Betty Yu, formal caucus president and associate professor from San Francisco State University. After this brief introduction, Betty is on screen. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. I hope you can all hear me okay. You can probably picture the Zoom-like window Betty appears in. Her background is a stream of water running over rocks. An orange fish is swimming past. In the corner of the screen, the words San Francisco State University appear. Betty is a faculty member. She became a full professor this fall. Next to Betty, you can see a title slide. It's provocative. It reads, Accent Modification. Does it do more harm than good? Briefly, before we go any further, I should explain what accent modification is. Basically, and the language here can get tricky, but ASHA recognizes we all have accents, variations in the sounds and rhythm we use when speaking. And as it says on the ASHA website, when people want to change that accent, they sometimes seek services from an SLP. How that plays out practically can vary, 
but often people who immigrate to the U.S., for example, are referred to these services or seek them out to gain economic, social, and cultural opportunities. The services are elective, and for many SLPs, the title and the question it poses, does accent modification do more harm than good, may have come as a surprise. It's a pretty widely accepted practice. For an hour, Betty challenges this practice using a critical social justice perspective. She examines accent modification in relationship to socioeconomic power. And the idea is to think about how different things are situated in power relationships that often are unequal. I mean, ultimately, we're looking to right inequities. It's an ambitious goal, Betty recognizes this, and she asks questions that her peers are surely going to find difficult to hear. She challenges Asha, often reading from official association statements and then holding them up for analysis. Here's a clip of Betty reading from the public-facing Asha webpage on accent modification. Everyone has an accent, and people sometimes want to change the way they speak, and that speech-language pathologists or SLPs can help. But Betty says not everyone is treated as if they have an accent. And she says that's because, from a critical, power-aware perspective, the language we use is associated with power. In a society where language varieties are socially stratified, which, by the way, we live in such a society that our languages are socially stratified, meaning that there's a hierarchy, okay, there's a ranking, the position of this privilege is called linguistic security. And it means that the larger society validates your belief that your speech is the correct one, the standard one, the normal one, the default one, whatever you want to call it. In the U.S., Betty says the people with the most linguistic security are those speaking standard American English, or SAE. She sometimes calls it idealized English. Some might say SAE is not an accent, but more of a dialect, a usually regional linguistic variation. The point Betty is making is not everyone is asked to change the way they speak. And the people who are asked to change are often people who have limited opportunities or are facing oppression. So this idea that no accent is better than another, I wholly believe that as an objective statement. But we are not there. And if we don't acknowledge the actual social reality that we're living, then again, we're putting people through experiences where they're going to feel really abused. I mentioned earlier that accent modification is elective, and that's true. But Betty points out, again, from a powerware perspective, it's a bit more complicated. Although accent modification is commonly characterized as purely an elective service, if we understand the premise of linguistic oppression, then we'll be able to see that people make this choice under highly constrained conditions. People seeking these services often have something at stake, like a job. And Betty says, although this is elective, that doesn't mean it always feels like a choice. People can make very clear-eyed choices that are nonetheless painful. They may even enjoy and appreciate the help that they're getting because in an imperfect world, it's a way forward. And it can feel very empowering to be able to do something that feels within your control. And the question is, do we as practitioners participate in the construction and reconstruction of a way in which this is the best way forward? So what does this mean for SLPs? What are they to do? I know that my colleagues who are following best practices would say, no, we're not 
moving them to a particular form. We're going for the best communication that's available to the speaker. That is definitely the best way to go if you're going to work on this at all. I would argue though, it doesn't do anything to turn the cart. You know, it doesn't challenge the basic framework that we're working on. It's just the best way forward, but we're playing by the rules that are there and that is operating on a hierarchy. The gist of her critique is accent modification is forcing, if only through social pressure, people with some accents to change a part of themselves that is associated with culture and identity, their speech. And Betty asks, why is all this burden placed on the speaker? We know that it takes two people to communicate. We know that the act of listening increases perception too. Instead of accent modification clinics, where are the listening clinics? The only, only solutions that we have identified in our discipline is you change. Communication, if we think of it as a shared responsibility, when it breaks down, there is a mutual responsibility for everyone who's involved to participate in that repair. And that's it. That's the message Betty shared with the API caucus. I've never spoken this frankly before. I've thought this for a long time, but it's risky to do this because I am afraid of offending my friends. I'm afraid of causing them pain. I'm afraid of taking apart our official documents from our accrediting body. But if I'm feeling the need and actually the pain of not talking about it, I'm hoping that some of you are as well. So thank you very much for being here. It's a lot to process. For some in the audience, including API Caucus co-president Lei Sun, Betty's presentation hit a personal note. Every aspect of what Betty said in the presentation affected me a lot emotionally and personally because of my personal experience. Sorry, I, sometimes when I get emotional, I sound a little bit like <laughs> shaky. You can hear the emotion in Lei Sun's voice. Lei is an SLP and a faculty member at Cal State Long Beach. I always ask myself, why? <laughs> why do people want to get accent modification? Personally, I think it's, um, it's as an immigrant, as an ELL, I think it's we try to fit in and the desire is so high, so strong. You want to be accepted by the society, especially by the profession. Lei says she feels there's an expectation on her and other SLPs to speak what she refers to as perfect English without an accent. Lei moved to the U.S. nearly 20 years ago when she was 26. As she points out, that was after the critical period in which she might be able to learn English without what we might call an accent. Before working in higher ed, Lei was a school-based SLP. She said the kids never judged her for the way she spoke, but some of the parents and her coworkers, she'd felt judged by them, not all of them, but some. Lei is bilingual, she speaks Mandarin Chinese and English, and she switches between the two. Lei says she's often focusing on changing the way she speaks so that others can understand her, and that's exhausting. Don't get me wrong, I think some people try to understand, but it's hard because my brain gets so busy, and usually by 5 p.m., my brain's dead. <laughs> I'm so tired. Betty calls this asymmetry, the burden of clear communication falling disproportionately on the speaker. And even not SOPs, people know there are so many ways to improve communication effectiveness. 
such as modifying our language, chunking the information, speaking slowly, using body language. So my question is: It takes two parties to make it work. But oftentimes, I feel people like me or people who speak with accent have to go extra, extra miles because we're supposed to meet in the middle to make it work. One part of this conversation is the connection between the voice and our language and our identity. And I'm wondering when people comment on your voice, or maybe say that they think that you have a responsibility. To change that, how does that relate to how you feel about your identity? It's a very heavy question. It does make me feel extremely uncomfortable. I feel like my identity, my background, has been challenged, has been questioned. Is something wrong about my identity? It's because I'm not American enough. Uh, I'm not. My English is not good enough, and is something wrong with me? I just want to go back to what Betty said in the presentation to remind people it takes two to communicate, and don't put the burden on the speakers, especially the speakers who. You know, people who speak with accent. I hope that the people can have a little bit more understanding, just a little bit. Yeah, we would really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we hear from someone in the audience who sees accent modification in a different light as a tool to combat linguistic discrimination, and we speak with Betty. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Hannon Center. If you'll be at the Asha Convention on November 15th through the 22nd, look out for two exciting virtual presentations from the Hannon Center that examine the outcomes of two Hannon programs offered via telepractice. Hannon's More Than Words program supports families of children with autism, while Target Word supports families of children who are late talkers. See what the research says about the impact of these two parent-implemented interventions. At the end of Betty's presentation, she acknowledged that she was so nervous she felt sick. She was afraid of causing her friends, her peers, any pain. And although her words were well received and echoed by many, I think it's fair to say she was right to be concerned about this. I do remember it because it was my birthday, actually. So, so I was on my birthday. That's the voice of Bob McKinney. He and Betty go back years. Bob was listening that day. I think it was entitled "Does Accent Modification Do More Harm Than Good?" And I think. I was kind of waiting for that good part, <laughs> and when I saw that wasn't really coming at all, it was really leaning much towards this is just a bad thing. It did hurt a little. Bob is more than qualified to talk about accent modification. He wrote a book on the subject. It's called "Here's How to Do Accent Modification: A Manual for Speech Language Pathologists." He also supervises students at an accent modification clinic at San Diego State University, where he teaches professionally. He's also a full-time school-based SLP. Bob is passionate about other cultures and the people that form them. He speaks six languages himself, and he's firmly against linguistic discrimination. I think it hurt when someone was criticizing what we did, where we were trying to do something that people wanted from us. 
can you please help me with this? We were providing that service on an elective basis and the clients were happy. And then for someone to go in and imply that we were really a part of the problem and not the solution. In response to the presentation, Bob collected testimonials from people who had received accent modification. He asked them this question, quote, Some speech therapists see accent modification as harmful because they believe it forces non-natives to conform to a way of speaking. So how would you respond to them? End quote. Here's one of those responses. It comes from a client named Dulce. In a way, I can understand because as far as the social aspect is concerned, Having non-native speakers conform to the mainstream or what is considered the mainstream way of speaking can create a harmful lack of acceptance or empathy for those who don't conform. However, as a non-native speaker, I have the responsibility but also the right to look for those resources that will help me to improve my English, my pronunciation, my accent, my grammar, my reading, everything that makes me feel more comfortable to express my ideas and get my point across in English. And also to just feel more confident and to enhance my self-esteem. For me, accent modification instructors are a guide and are very helpful. Bob sees accent modification as a tool to defend against linguistic discrimination. If someone says they want to work on their speech to be understood more easily, and an SLP is willing to work on that with them, who can say they shouldn't have that opportunity? What I'm hoping to do is to try to separate out just phonological instruction from that other issue, because I think most people would recognize that learning another language involves learning about the sound system of that language. And if you get instruction in that on a voluntary basis, it seems very natural to most people. Some people would say that accent modification is a form of linguistic discrimination because it is taking a speaker's voice and steering it perhaps more towards standard American English and saying that all of the responsibility is on the speaker. What is your take of that view? Well, the first thing I would point out is that we really need to step back and look at this and say, this is going on in all the languages of the world. I've met accent modification providers using all different types of dialects of American English and including, people forget this, this is a really key point, non-native speakers provide accent modification. So non-native speakers who have non-native accents provide accent modification. If we can separate it out and view it from that bigger picture, yeah, in some cases, sure, it could be linguistically discriminatory, but is it inherently? I can't see how it could be. Bob emphasizes how important it is that this service is elective a few times in our conversation. At one time, this practice was called accent reduction, but concerns over that name saw the practice become accent modification. Still, Bob says accent modification, that name might not even be the most fitting selection. The name is not, in some ways, not that great because it is misleading. Really, for over 25 years now in the ESL world, there's been some very good research on how we could separate out different aspects of oral communication. And really, we could take the accent part out. So what you've got, if you divide things up in that way, you would say accent is just the way that you speak that kind of signifies who you are, where you're from, social status, et cetera, that kind of thing. But really, we could try to separate that out and say that that's the part, though, that doesn't interfere with communication. Instead, Bob says SLPs can focus on two other aspects. Number one is intelligibility. Pretty much everybody is going to agree that intelligibility is really the cornerstone of all communication because it just means people have to understand each other, essentially. And the other aspect is something he calls naturalness. 
that would mean I can understand everything you said, but if you said it so differently, your patterns were so different, it might cause unnecessary attention. But if you take those three things, accent, intelligibility, naturalness, the accent part is completely unnecessary for us to even focus on it. It has no purpose there, right? So there's nothing, it's actually something that represents the wonderful diversity of the world's languages. So that part should be taken off the table and should be really viewed as something beautiful that really has to be just respected and really, really, really preserved and supported. But the intelligibility and the naturalness, those are key aspects that we work on in the field. Unless I'm misunderstanding, are you saying that it would be possible to have successful accent modification without any change to the accent? Yes, we don't actually work on accent at all, to be honest. <laughs> if you think of the voice and language as a tool and not a part of identity, the problematic question seems to mostly go away. But if you think of language as a part of identity and a part of culture, then I think it becomes a little more clear where the argument is that it's asking someone to change a part of their cultural identity. And I'm just wondering if you see language as more of a tool or if you see it as a part of culture and identity. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely see language and all aspects of language as a part of identity. And that's why these issues become extremely challenging. But I think where the issue lies there is that it's so nuanced. You have some people who feel that if they change the way they speak, they're really losing a part of themselves and they really are almost selling out to another culture versus you also have, and that's why we are advocating a freedom of choice approach here really, right? Because you have some people who say, hey, I want to change some aspects of the way I communicate. I'm still me, but I want to change the way I communicate in another language because it's going to help me maybe be more intelligible, or give better presentations or something like that. Bob says he does view communication as a shared responsibility. He recognizes the listener and speaker both have to work together, and he likes hearing ideas for new approaches. I just think that we don't want to take any tools off the table. We don't want to take accent modification off the table because many clients want this and they want it for appropriate reasons because they're learning a new language and they want to work with highly trained professionals who can help them achieve their goals. I think we can all work together to figure out how to move forward so that we're all, we're all aimed at the same thing. We're all trying to fight linguistic discrimination, trying to reduce any burden to a non-native speaker that's there. We're all working on that together. The response Betty received to her presentation was polarized. I spoke with Betty in August, and we began by talking about what she had heard from those who saw her presentation. Either the response is people feeling intensely that they've been heard and seen and that I've expressed something that feels important to them and true, or people feeling intensely offended and misunderstood and maligned. It's been nearly a year since Betty gave this presentation. You know, one thing I think about a lot, and people ask me a lot, is are there any positive aspects to the accent modification practice? And uh, when I think about that, I want to say, yes, there are a lot of benefits to learning how to communicate more effectively with a wide variety of people, right? It's great to learn the nuances of different languages and their sound patterns. Betty says for her, in the time she spent reflecting on this since the presentation, she sees the issue is about perspective, using the analogy of different camera lenses. When you think about it in terms of learning or expanding your repertoire, it feels so straightforward and not problematic. 
when I look at it this way, it feels like I have the camera zoomed in really tight on just language learning or just pronunciation learning. And when I have the camera pulled in really tight and just look at it in isolation, it feels pretty straightforward. It's not until, and I think that this accounts for why it felt really neutral, even all the way through my master's program. It really wasn't until that, you know, I got exposed through studying in my doctoral program, studying race and studying about the relationship between race and language, between class and language, between all of these sociological statuses and language that the camera zoomed out. So what did the camera backing out reveal to me? So this is the reveal, okay? The reveal to me was the practice isn't problematic until you see, when you zoom out, who gets it, who is asked to get it, and who is assumed to be a candidate for it. Betty says this was really for all accents. We would see more variety in who is receiving accent modification services. You should see all kinds of people coming through. You should see people from every national origin background, every regional language background. You should be seeing a lot of standardized English speakers get accent modification because everybody needs that. Everybody needs to speak more effectively, more clearly. There is a fact in our field that the people who get accent modification are practically all speakers of what is perceived as non-standardized English. Some people say accent modification is a way for clients to protect themselves from linguistic discriminations. And I'm wondering, do you share that perspective? Or do you think accent modification is a form of linguistic discrimination? I think it's both. Again, I'm pulling that camera lens way out to give you that answer. So if we are to acknowledge that people are discriminated for the way they speak, then we can see that there are a couple of different ways to interrupt that. So one is to speak differently. And the other way is to change the way of thinking that leads to the discrimination. Betty moved to the U.S. when she was a child. She came here with her parents, and she often found herself acting as a translator for them. Betty knows what it's like to learn a new language. In my own life, I've been a student learning English and Japanese and French and American Sign Language. And in each case, I aspire to emulate the people who I perceived as having mastery over those languages and have something to teach me about that. And so when we look at just the technical aspects of it, I think it can be thought of it as pretty neutral. And even though the ideas Betty is sharing are rooted in theory, she recognizes them from her own life. I do know that for many of us who are minoritized in the field, often we feel a outsized responsibility to be the one to make accommodations, to be the ones to change, to be the ones to live up to all the expectations. Like, uh, you know, you have to 
work harder and work better and be better and be uh, just be able to achieve a level of performance that is beyond reproach. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to see actually. It's it's really hard to see. What do you mean it's hard to see? Like it's like like emotionally it's difficult to see in your colleagues or what do you mean? Because I didn't I it's hard to see because I identify with that, you know, wanting to wanting to not be marginalized. And the thing that we have control over because we can't change all of society is ourselves is to put up those walls and to make the changes that we need to, to fit in and hope that the, the pressure and the stress and the discrimination goes away. And sometimes it lessens or sometimes, you know, the changes that we make in ourselves bolster us in a way that it gives us more confidence and maybe we could withstand more, but it's just hard. It's just hard that the solution tends to fall on the individual because that's all we have control over. Finally, I want to introduce you to one more person who is in the audience for Betty's presentation. My name is Sophia Carias. I am a bilingual speech language pathologist in the Los Angeles area. And I'm the current president of the Hispanic Caucus. Sofia immigrated to the U.S. from El Salvador with her parents when she was five years old. They were escaping civil war. I moved here. I remember I told people the story of getting off the plane. I didn't speak a lick of English. At the airport, I thought everybody was crazy. <laughs> and I was like, well, people must be crazy here where we are in this new place. <laughs> because I couldn't understand them. I remember thinking that. But I learned English in kindergarten when I went to school. Sophia describes her parents' speech as heavily accented, and she says they face discrimination because of the way they sound. She says it's made this matter personal for her. I feel like it's affected their identity, and I noticed that my parents, as educated as they are, have always felt maybe like they weren't enough in this society, like they weren't, oh, if I don't spell this right, then I'm going to be looked upon less. Like, even though they're both very intelligent and highly educated, I feel like they have always struggled to fit in. I'm biased. I don't like that. I think that that's not okay because my parents have an accent. My mother switches to English whenever we're in public. <laughs> it makes me angry when people look at my parents funny because they don't sound like perfect English. It makes me very angry. So that is my personal stake in this. Do you view speech that is perceived as having an accent as something that is a part of identity? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think... It's difficult to separate how you sound when you open your mouth to somebody from your identity, as it's difficult to separate culture from language. You can't separate those two out. The first thing that people hear about you is when you open your mouth and say something, they already have notions about you. They already have preconceived notions. I wanted to speak to Sophia after reading a comment she left on a virtual conversation about accent modification, which featured both Betty Yu and Bob McKinney. Hosted by the California Speech-Language Hearing Association, the discussion took place months after Betty's API caucus presentation. Here's what Sophia wrote. It says, I believe we are at a reckoning in this country and possibly globally. What once was in the dark is being forced into the light. Our profession is not excluded from this. Whether it is accents, stuttering, autism, gender, etc., it forces us to confront difficult ideas and our own biases. As an immigrant, 
a speech language pathologist, a bilingual speaker. I have many passionate ties to this topic. Thank you for opening up this dialogue. I think what's really interesting about what you just shared is how you're bringing in these other ideas as well, stuttering, autism, gender, etc. you said. What was it that prompted you to make these connections? I felt listening to this talk about accent modification was eerily like in the other conversations that we've been having the last few years in our profession about things like autism. Same thing in the stuttering community. They're not broken. I related, again, similar to the gender identity. And I felt like accent falls into all of that because we've only seen it in one way before. Like you're a foreigner, you have an accent, you must be this. So I felt like it was really all related. And so you're talking about right now, you think there's maybe a reckoning that a lot of these subjects that combine identity and language in the voice, that they're being put into the light, you said. Absolutely. And I don't think that that happened before. I think that there was a social shift here in America having not just to do with George Floyd last year, but a lot of things were brought out that were not okay, starting with the Me Too movement a couple years ago. And I think that we need to continue to grow in that direction so that we don't wither and die as a society. Is there any reason you think this is happening now? I mean, this is maybe a bigger question than just a speech language pathology question, right? But is there something happening right now? I think that we've narrowly defined identity before in a lot of ways. Woman, autistic, foreigner. I think we've used these narrow terms to define identity. And I think that that's not going to work anymore for a lot of people. Like you're more than just the word, that one word to describe your identity. As we've heard from our guests, the connection between speech and identity is central to this conversation. Speech is both a tool and a part of culture and identity, and how that translates into practice can be contentious. And I think it's clear from everyone I spoke to, speech has deep emotional roots with ties to family and identity, and that makes it sensitive for many people. Maybe it's as simple as what Sophia told me. She said, I feel like there's more to an accent than what meets the ear. Asha Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association. It comes from the team behind the Asha Leader magazine. I want to send a special thank you to my guests today for discussing this sensitive subject with me, and to Sheen Cho and Katie Pearson. Sheen is the co-president of the API Caucus. Katie is the founder of Alpha Speech, where she trains pilots to pass FAA proficiency requirements for flying all over the world. Conversations I shared with Sheen and Katie were critical to my understanding of this subject, and I want to thank them both for their time and knowledge. Read a profile of Katie on the Asha Leader blog. You can find that full story online at leader.pubs.asha.org. And while you're there, you can find the blog post for this episode too. That's leader.pubs.asha.org. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Hannon Center. Hannon programs are about more than language. They're about building the connections that make families' lives better. Visit the Hannon Virtual Booth at the ASHA Convention to see how Hannon programs can enrich your practice. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence, I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.